I read a lot online, and it seems like virtually every article I read is surrounded by ads. And to me, the headlines on those internet ads serve as a rather interesting window into our culture. Here's some of the headlines I've recently seen. Three proven arguments for defeating a liberal. How to defeat a conservative in three minutes. How to make an atheist look like a fool. Three simple steps to prove that religion is for idiots. Now, do you see a trend here? These ads are not about discussion and engagement. They're focused on winning. It's all about identifying and defeating your particular social and political enemies. And attitudes like this are not limited to the internet. We see similar ideas communicated through newspapers and television and on the radio and through blogs. And these attitudes are increasingly being embraced by growing numbers of people. And it's producing a season of cultural chaos and it's turning us into a society of criticizers. It's turning us into people who are animated by attacking and tearing down rather than building up. And if we're not careful, we can bring these attitudes with us into the church where it can affect our life together. A friend of mine is a pastor in Portland, and he tells me that his church attendance is down 50% over the last two years because many Republicans and Democrats in his congregation refuse to be in church with each other. Now, now it's tempting to point our fingers at the other side, whoever we think the other side is, and it's tempting to lay the blame at their feet. God, though, always wants us to examine our own lives first. And the reality is that any of us can become caught up in the temper of our times. And we need to ask, is this what God wants for His people? Is this what God wants from His people? Or does God want us to rise above the fray? Now, I don't think God wants us to put our head in the sand and ignore the world around us. I do think He has a better way for us to live. A better way than what's modeled for us by our culture. I think he wants us to embrace a way of life that builds up rather than tears down. It's the way of encouragement. And biblical encouragement is far more than just nice-sounding words. This morning, we're going to look at four distinct scenes from the book of Acts. Scenes where we encounter a man named Barnabas. A man who shows us how to embrace a lifestyle of encouragement. Encouragement that meets people's needs. Encouragement that equips people to live by faith in Jesus. Encouragement that shows believers how to live like Jesus. And we find scene one of the life of Barnabas in Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 37. All the believers were one in heart and mind. 
No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Isn't that amazing? Everything. Everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. What an incredible statement about their community. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now this is a marvelous passage because it describes a very powerful aspect of Christian community. When believers take seriously what Jesus taught, then they become generous with their stuff so that the basic needs of everyone are met. Now, meeting practical needs is not the only reason to be financially generous, but it's a key reason. And as we see here in this passage, many people in the early church are embracing this lifestyle of financial generosity. Yet there's one man in particular, Joseph. Joseph from the island of Cyprus, who's highlighted. And he's highlighted... To make a point. Now, this is the first time that we meet Joseph in the Bible, but it's evident that the apostles already know him. They've known him long enough, and they know him well enough to give him a nickname, the nickname of Barnabas. Now, we need to understand that, that, that names and nicknames in the Middle East are handled very differently than the way we do nicknames. We often give nicknames based on physical characteristics. I recall back in grade school, I was one of the first boys to have my voice change. And so there was a season of time when I talked lower than all of the other guys. And so I was affectionately called Bruce the Moose. Really nice, huh? But that's what we do. We sometimes give nicknames based on physical characteristics. Sometimes we just shorten or alter someone's name in a playful way. My initials are BW. And in college, I had a friend who just called me B-Dub. Doesn't mean anything, just a nickname. In Bible times, though, names and nicknames are filled with meaning because they're viewed as insights into the character of the person. And as we see here from verse 36, Barnabas means son of encouragement. The apostles give him this nickname because encouragement evidently is not just something he does. Encouragement is who he is. Encouragement is at the core of his character. And I find it interesting that we are introduced to him at the very moment when he makes a generous financial gift to the family of God. You see, there's a link between encouragement and generosity. And Barnabas' gift is extremely generous. It says that he sold a field. Well, when you own a field in that day, it's not an empty weed-strewn lot. It's an agricultural field. It's a field used for growing cash crops. So when Barnabas sells this field, he is selling income-producing land. 
In other words, as a result of this gift, he loses both an asset and the income produced by that asset. Now, unless he's independently wealthy, this is a sacrificial gift. And why does he do it? To help care for other believers who are on the margins. To care for people who have less. Barnabas chooses to be generous. And his generosity is encouraging. It's certainly encouraging to the people who benefit from his gift as their needs are met. I believe it's also encouraging for other believers see him choose to make that sacrifice. It's encouraging because it shows that Barnabas takes his faith seriously and he's willing to invest some of what he has into the lives of other people. His gift is encouraging because he's not tearing down. He's building up. And it's obvious that he's just one of many doing that within their community of faith. And so he sees that other people are being generous and it encourages him to be generous. Barnabas is generous and it encourages other people to be generous. Everyone is being generous. It's a virtuous circle of encouragement. And the result is that everyone's needs are met. And I pray that this kind of thing would always be true within our church family. That we would make the choice to give generously from what we have so that we can meet needs both inside the church and even outside the church. Because when we choose to give generously, it promotes a very healthy attitude. An attitude of encouragement. That's scene one from the life of Barnabas. Encouragement through the act of generous giving. For scene two, let's jump over to Acts chapter 9, verses 26 to 28. When he came to Jerusalem, the he there is Saul. We're going to learn more about him in a minute. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Paul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Now there's quite a story behind this passage about Saul and Barnabas. Prior to this time, Saul had been a devoted Jew who loved to harass Christians because he believed they were heretics. Everything changes for him, though, when he has a miraculous encounter with the risen Jesus. And Saul is transformed from a passionate critic of Christianity into a passionate believer in Jesus. And he does more than just embrace this new, newfound belief. He starts to preach and teach. And he teaches all about Jesus in places like Damascus. And people are amazed. Amazed that this former Jew who used to malign Christians is now preaching that Jesus is the Messiah. And that he is the way to God. And then Saul makes his way to Jerusalem. And the Christians there are suspicious. They don't buy it. 
And there's a good reason for that. The last time they saw Saul, he was urging people to stone them to death. It's not surprising that the believers in Jerusalem are just a little bit skeptical about Saul. Furthermore, Jerusalem is the center of the church. It's the center of their life. It's the place where the key leaders live and serve. This is where key decisions are made. And what if Saul has a hidden agenda? What if he's only pretending to be a Christian as a way to work himself into the inner circle where he can really cause havoc for the newfound church of Jesus Christ? So the Jerusalem believers find it hard to accept that Saul has changed. They find it hard to believe that he really did have a vision of the resurrected Jesus. They find it hard to believe that their former enemy now actually is their ally. And they find it hard to believe that he actually can powerfully share the message of Jesus. They can't accept any of it. Barnabas, though, is different. Barnabas moves beyond suspicion. He moves beyond doubt. And he accepts that Saul really did have a vision of Jesus. He accepts the validity of Saul's preaching. And Barnabas puts his own reputation on the line by vouching for Saul. And Why does he do that? Because he absolutely believes that when people encounter Jesus Christ, they can be changed through the Holy Spirit. I find myself wondering, do we really believe that? Do we really live as if that's true, that people can change? Here's an example that's far less dramatic than the case of Saul, but perhaps more relevant to the situations that you and I might encounter. Adam's a friend of mine. He's a pastor in California, and he was raised in the church, but but he was always a bit unruly. In fact, he was, he was the terror of the church youth group. <laughs> and during his time in that church, he never, ever became a follower of Jesus. When he went off to college, though, things changed. He had a dramatic encounter with God. And he repented of his sins. He was baptized as a believer. And he devoted his life to ministry. After a season of preparation, he served on the staff of a church in the Midwest for several years, and then his home church invited him to come back and be their preaching minister. They wanted their prodigal son to come home. But you know what? Adam is really struggling. He's struggling because too many people won't accept the fact that he's changed. And when he stands in front of the church and preaches from the Word of God and exhorts them to live different kinds of lives, after the message, far too often someone will, will say something like, Oh, Adam, we just remember how you used to be. They discount often what he says. They discount who he is because of who he was. And I keep praying for someone in that congregation to be like Barnabas, to stand up and affirm Adam and remind that church that God's Spirit changes people. 
And this principle can apply broadly to all kinds of situations. You and I need to accept the fact that a new convert may surpass our zeal and may surpass our faith. And you know what? They might be able to teach some things to us. Those of us with grown children. We need to accept the fact that our children, as they grow up, they may surpass our knowledge and our experience and our faith, and they may come to a point where they have things to teach us. Those of us who are older than 50 need to accept that the generation coming after us is continuing to grow, and we need to be ready to pass the mantle of leadership in the church on to them. And in all of these situations, we need people like Barnabas who will encourage us to change our perspective and to accept people for who they are and for who they are becoming, not for who they were. And when we do, when we graciously accept people and believe that the Holy Spirit is at work changing them, the consequences can be profound Because Barnabas accepts that Saul has changed, he sets the stage for history-making ministry. And that's not an exaggeration. That's not hyperbole. It's true. Saul's name is changed from the Jewish Saul to the Greek Paul. He leads many people to faith. He starts new churches, and God uses him to write much of our New Testament. God works through Barnabas and his great gift of encouragement to set Saul loose for ministry as the Apostle Paul, a ministry that changed the world. And you and I will never know the long-term impact of what might happen when we believe that people can be changed by Jesus and then we live accordingly. Gracious acceptance is encouraging, and it's transforming. That's scene two from the life of Barnabas. For scene three, let's move on to Acts chapter 11. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts." He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. A man named Stephen is stoned and becomes the first Christian martyr. And that seemed to arouse the passions of the Jews, and they began to more openly persecute the followers of Jesus. A number of the Christians have to flee for safety. But here's one of the things that that just blows me away. Here's people whose whole lives are being uprooted. They're having to start over and try and rebuild their lives in a new place. And yet, as they leave behind everything they've known along the way, 
They never stopped telling people about Jesus. They never stopped being concerned about the spiritual welfare of people they encounter. That's a great example of faith. Now, at this time, the, the community of faith consists mostly of Jews, but some believers start sharing their faith with Gentiles as well. And as we read here in our passage, the message of Jesus resonates very strongly in the Greek city of Antioch. So Barnabas is sent there to support that new community of believers. And how does he do it? He does it by passionately encouraging them to hold on to Jesus with all of their hearts. You see, Christianity isn't just a matter of the head. It's not a matter of just accepting mentally the right set of beliefs. Jesus must rule in our hearts because that's what's going to prompt us to change in the way that we live. Barnabas wants these Christians in Antioch to live with a belief to faith, not a belief one faith. And if you don't understand what I just said, go online and listen to last week's message about the profound difference between belief one and belief too. It's about how we live. Barnabas understands that life is full of distractions. It's full of competing values. So the believers in Antioch need to make their connection with Jesus a top priority. Because so many other things can intrude. Think for a moment about all the ways that the faith of these new Christians could be diluted. They could spend too much time focusing on their own personal financial success. They could spend time debating the pros and cons of the Roman Empire and whether or not it's a good thing to be a Roman citizen. And those who don't like Rome could spend time complaining about the soldiers and the taxes and the emperor. In other words, they could be distracted by the same kinds of things that distract us. Politics, success, money. Now these issues are not irrelevant to them and they're not irrelevant to us. However, they're not supposed to be the overriding focus for a Christian. And that's why Barnabas points these believers to Jesus because only Jesus can help us keep the issues of life in proper perspective. And Barnabas's encouragement here Empowered by the fact that he is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, it makes a profound difference in this particular church. The community of faith there in Antioch is strengthened, and even more people become Christians. It's a reminder that when a church is devoted to Jesus, when a church is devoted to building the kingdom of God, when a church encourages people in the life of faith, then that kind of community is going to be very attractive to many people who are far from God. Because it's a community that builds people up. Passionate encouragement. Not a pep talk, but encouragement to stay focused on Jesus. What a marvelous expression of who Barnabas is, the son of encouragement. That's scene three. Then we come to scene four, which is my personal favorite 
And we find that in the book of Acts chapter 15. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. Prior to this, Barnabas and Paul, Paul who had been Saul, They teamed up to become the very first missionaries of the church. And they traveled to far off places telling all kinds of people, Jews and Gentiles, about Jesus. And on those journeys, they often have traveling companions. On one such trip, one companion was this guy named John Mark. Unfortunately, for reasons that are not clear to us, they're not recorded in Scripture, Mark bailed out before the trip was over. He gave up. He didn't see things through. He went home. Well, now some time has passed. Barnabas says, you know, we were on this trip and we got some churches started and we encouraged believers. Let's go back and see how they're doing and continue to encourage them. And oh, by the way, let's take Mark with us again. And Paul says, not in your life. He has no interest in giving Mark a second chance. We're not sure what words were exchanged, but I kind of imagine Paul saying something like this to Barnabas. Are you kidding? Take Mark. That kid's a quitter. He'll just bail out on us again. We need to take somebody else. I don't know what they said. But the point is, Paul has given up. Barnabas has not. Barnabas refuses to give up on Mark, and he feels so strongly about this that he and Paul have a very sharp disagreement, and they can't serve together any longer. It doesn't mean that they stop loving each other as brothers in Christ. It means they have different priorities. Because unlike Paul, Barnabas is willing to forgive Mark for failing. He wants to give him a second chance. Now, when you give someone a second chance, it's very gracious, but it's also very risky. Because the fact is, Mark might fail again. People can and do let us down. Yet, how will people ever learn and grow if we simply abandon them after a failure? And Barnabas, the son of encouragement, is willing to take the risk. And it pays off in a huge way. And we see that from a brief comment written by Paul many years later in the book of 2 Timothy. Here's what he says in 2 Timothy 4.11. Paul writes, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. Paul wants Mark with him by his side. And how, how could Mark ever have become Helpful to Paul after Paul writes him off. 
The only way that happens is because of Barnabas. Barnabas gives Mark a second chance and he responds. And Mark doesn't fail again. He proves that he can be reliable. And as a result, reconciliation eventually takes place between Paul and Mark. And Mark becomes helpful to Paul in his ministry. And I think this little comment from Paul, get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful in my ministry. I think it's, I think it's a tacit endorsement of Barnabas's action. I think he's admitting that years earlier, Barnabas made the right choice by giving Mark a second chance. And as a result, reconciliation takes place. But here's what's profound. The impact of this second chance goes far beyond Mark's relationship with Paul. Mark becomes friends with the apostles. He develops a particularly close friendship with Peter. And through all of this, he learns about the life of Jesus in great detail. He winds up writing a biography of Jesus. A biography that carries his name included in the Bible as the book of Mark. And I find myself wondering how many people's lives have been changed because they read about Jesus. They encountered the Savior through the words that Mark wrote down. You know, it probably wouldn't have happened if Mark had been allowed to wallow in his failure. Barnabas' second chance made all the difference for Mark. And I hope that we're inspired by that example and reminded that we shouldn't write people off when they fail. We should extend them some grace and give them a second chance. And when they are encouraged because we've forgiven them, who knows what they might accomplish for the kingdom of God. Barnabas gives Mark a second chance, and the impact still is being felt today. Now, Barnabas shows up several different places in the Bible, but I I love these four scenes. I think they give us a very clear picture of how this man lives out the meaning of his name. He truly is the son of encouragement, and he models that in such distinct ways. He models generous financial giving. He models gracious acceptance of people. He models passionate encouragement to stay focused on Jesus. He models extending second chances to help people overcome failure. And as we've seen, Barnabas' encouragement had a major impact on the life of Paul and the life of Mark. And beyond that, his encouragement builds people up within the churches and equips them to live as followers of Jesus. And the more you and I can follow this example, the more we will be changed. We'll develop new attitudes toward other believers. And we will create a life together that is inviting. Because we increasingly will be creating a community of spiritual encouragement. Who wouldn't want to be part of a community of encouragement? I think God wants you and I to ponder this. 
and to think about these four different ways that we can encourage one another as Barnabas does. And I think God wants us to ponder some specific questions. What is God's Spirit saying to you and to me today? And how might He prompt us to live a way of life different than our culture? How might He prompt you? How might He prompt me to be less of a criticizer and more of an encourager?